and welcome back to the Dew Point Report, the Digital Electronic World Point Report. In this episode, a very brief episode at that, I'll be talking about Project Roomkey and what that means in the broader context of solving homelessness and why, though an important project in the strategy to solve homelessness, it may actually be a daily and a dollar short. And why do I say that? I don't say it facetiously. I actually say it in the sense that many of the localities that have embraced this concept seem to be treating it as if though it's a brand new concept. But for some reason it has bifurcated a series of other programs that already existed to provide continuum of care. And therefore creating an anomaly, somewhat an amalgamation of unique circumstances which one has to really think about for the next 10 years and how that will affect the entire municipalities, jurisdictions, and locations that are embracing this project. So what is it? And who funded it? And where does it come from? And how does it expect to solve such a complex situation that few have been able to solve to its maximum 100% resolvability. Well, that when we return. Thanks for listening. This is your host, Margarita. And welcome back. So in this conversation about why is solving homelessness so complex, yet it seems simplistic, from a distance. No, it is not simplistic. No, anyone can comment or opinionate, so to say. If they've never experienced such a circumstance, so difficult. And so, let's really look at this from the perspective of perspectives within perspectives and people who opinionate without understanding within the simple explanation that many may profoundly proclaim. What do I mean by that? Well, take this for example. When we enter kindergarten, we get an assessment. When we enter college, we get an assessment. When we enter certain work responsibilities, we get an assessment. And then once we're in work, we are assessed as to the quality of our work and our responsibilities. And throughout our careers, in various job responsibilities, we may be spoken to about the quality of our work and how great it is, how fantastic it is, or how it may need a little fine-tuning. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with many of those aspects, but in some of my episodes you have heard me speak to some of the types of surveys that are utilized as assessments that have been questionable as to what their actual purpose is because they tend to compartmentalize certain traits that then leave a lot of people out of certain compartmentalizations and abilities to succeed to their own capacities. 
And so what ends up happening is, because there are always and have been always limited resources, we cannot even if we had a maximum funded general fund, have the ability to fund every single program that one has ever wanted to fund. That's a misnomer. We try. We do try. As a society, as any society, try to appeal to our best of notions. And it has been proven over the decades, over the centuries, that even the most altruistic of people have a sense of responsibility to themselves. If you look at, for example, Maslow's hierarchy, within Maslow's hierarchy, even an altruistic person has a responsibility for self-actualization. So they cannot, without having identified what is their ability to become self-actualized, understand the ability of what it takes to actually be altruistic. And that's with any individual. So it cannot be said that even a person who is altruistic doesn't want to be caring, doesn't also have the ability or the important responsibility to be responsible also to his or her, or whichever pronoun the person chooses to call themselves or be asked to be called, to a responsibility to the people that they define as their community. Therein being said that being the situation, this creates pockets of communities within communities within areas of responsibility. And if you're still following with me in this important concept, then you should really think about the following. Why is Maslow's hierarchy so important in connection to the ability to be responsible for others? But I'll let you think about that for a moment, and we'll return in just after this break. Thanks for listening. This is your host, Margarita. And welcome back to the Two Point Report, the Digital Electronic World Point Report, where often conversations... Right now, it seems like they're one-sided conversations, but I know someday someone will actually call in and want to be part of the conversation. So for now, it is simply a momentary monologue, which will soon become a conversation. But in, having said that, in understanding the digital experience we have with how we spend so much time with our computers, our phones, our tablets, our iPads, so on and so forth, but then have to turn them on and be able to actually participate, just as we used to so much more before all of these took up so much of our time, participate in society with the people in conversation and understanding really what's going on with their lives as well. And so it's that combination of the digital electronic world which connects us between existing as humans and then our digital experiences with that particular understanding of how we are truly dynamic individuals 
Yes, we all multitask. But now as we dive back into the subject matter of why is solving homelessness so complex? Well, you're probably asking yourself the following. What does Maslow's hierarchy have to do with solving homelessness? Hmm. Let me explain the following. There are a lot of people who believe that because there are so many altruistic individuals, philanthropic people, who have often been willing to continue their philanthropy in terms of donating and giving and all of this type of kindness. It's not a type of kindness, it's a compassion. It's a true understanding that to be kind to others is a type of karma that turns back and is returned to oneself. But it is not simple. It is actually complex. And so where Maslow's hierarchy is relevant is the following. You see, a person still has to be strong enough within their own self-awareness, their their own self-standing to be able to fully maximize their potential before they can even begin to identify projects that are of a passion within a community outside the responsibility of their own community. Because, having said that, and even if you look at a Venn diagram, and I don't mean Vin Diesel, the actor, talking about a Venn diagram where when you get two circles and in a moment in time they actually interconnect. The interconnectivity is what brings perhaps a subject matter in two people, unifies two people because of the subject matter because they actually connect on something that they think that is something that they have a similar opinion to. So when you begin to look at it, it could be more than two people, it could be three people, four people, five people, six people, seven people, because sometimes uh, certain subject matters are community solvable. So what do I mean by that? When the things such as, in, and of course we're talking about Project Roomkey, which is this latest uh, 2021, I would call it a fad program of the year for solving homelessness. I call it FAT program because it really doesn't show the long-term the long-term completion of how it's going to solve homelessness. When one looks at solving homelessness, you have to look at a 10-year plan, a 20-year plan, long-term. And that doesn't mean that it's just a budget for the immediate fiscal year that would be looked at for spending. You actually have to be able to invest in the long term to be able to maintain the budgetary continuation of programs so that the investments can truly reflect the programs that they are supposed to be providing within the communities that they are serving. So because everyone knows and understands that you need a minimum of five years of providing a service in order to reflect data that is understandable. Anything short of that is easily translatable in so many directions. 
and can be sliced and spliced and misunderstood easily. So, thus, and having said that, let's focus on the following. Solving homelessness is one topic because there are so many passion projects, so many situations and circumstances that people have a passion for that they want to dedicate their philanthropy focus on when municipalities change their funding models from long-term funding within budget structures to short-term funding of small budgets where they are funded grant to grant to grant and dependent on funding being available year to year to year, it runs the risk of funding not being there the next year for a project that may be pivotal to the sustaining of what would be considered continuum of care. If there is a program that is so essential, falling in the category of safety net programs, safety net programs truly being there in the moment when someone needs a program the most. Because there are programs where they are nice to do's, and then there are programs that are have to do's, and then there are programs that are responsibilities to do's, because there are responsibilities to maintain a baseline responsibility to certain services. What happens is also developing a clarity of what defines a community. And in the next segment, we'll be talking about why is it so complex? Why hadn't it been solved years ago? And if it had been solved years ago to a certain percentage, why did the percentages suddenly change? And why suddenly are people developing new programs when there used to be such fantastic programs years ago. What happened to all the people that were working on the programs that were so effective? And if they were efficacious, why were they now determined to be not efficacious and not working? What suddenly changed in the ethos of such situations that would have uh, developed a brand new systematic understanding of what needed to be done and that will be understood in the next segment thanks for listening and welcome back if you're wondering what does philanthropy have to do with this whole conversation of solving homelessness philanthropy is important for the following reasons there are many funding models that are diversified for nonprofits and corporations that actually consider themselves in the category of providing essential safety net programs that fund themselves through extremely philanthropic people. And what ends up happening is one must have a deep understanding of the symbiotic relationship between a philanthropist and philanthropy. For it is true 
that while there are some people who maintain a passion for one particular area in which they want to invest their money, because truly a donation of millions of dollars is an investment in a belief that something is so important they want to put their money in that. But what happens is uh, these individuals are very rare that they would keep their money in a particular passion project for a lifetime. More often than not, a philanthropist will possibly move their philanthropies to different areas. And when they have moved their monies from different areas, that's when it is the responsibility not at the point upon which where the philanthropy decision to move the philanthropy is decided, but of course always and continuously to work with people who are of a philanthropic mind to be able to understand what their areas of concern are, where they want to invest their money, what is important to them, what they want to resolve in the world. There are always people who want to resolve things in the world, but recognizing what they want to resolve is so essential, because not recognizing what people want to resolve is a disconnect from that symbiotic relationship. And symbiotic relationships exist in nature, they exist in human dynamics, and they exist in everyday situations. not only in stagnant situations, but in dynamic situations. So, why this is important is, yes, funding changes from year to year, but so too does the understanding need to change and understand where the funding goes and why. Because uh, some, as I mentioned before, you cannot have the general funds of some municipalities or state general funds change their funding models such that they are so fluid they don't budget specific programs that are essential and safety net programs far too long it has been acceptable to be able to remove what is known as removing 1% from the general fund and then allowing only at a trickle of up to 3% to be returned. And it doesn't have to be returned in a certain amount of time, but for a certain amount of time, I should say. And so that leaves an extremely large funding gap for a period of time that needs to be filled in various ways. And necessary are savvy individuals who can uh, continue to contribute and their organizations through development. Because without that, without development, there is no organization that can assist in providing the essential services necessary, particularly in safety net programs. And, and when I speak of safety net programs, it isn't just solving homelessness. Because solving homelessness is, of course, such the phraseology that people understand but uh, within homelessness itself you really have to if you if you defragment that for a moment and look at all the pieces that have been compartmentalized within that 
concept, you would understand it does include continuum of care, it does include education, it does include health care, it does include housing, it does include assisted living, it does include skilled care, and it does include many others, other circumstances that I'm not even mentioning at the moment. But why it's essential is each of them is a piece of the puzzle. And when the puzzle is taken apart and reconstructed, if it's reconstructed in such an order that each of those components is no longer in the same puzzle but in a different puzzle because it falls under a different funding model, then it's difficult to find in terms of the services that people once had. Um, if you're if you've lost me in my thinking at the moment, think of it this way. It's as if every single time your app was requiring an update and you updated your favorite app that you used on your phone or on your mobile device and suddenly everything you were utilizing is no longer where it used to be. Well, you have to relearn everything. If your brain is synapse-connected to the neurons exactly the way it used to be, which our brains change constantly, so if you are as savvy today as you were yesterday, kudos to you. But if you have been using the same app for 20 years, I'm just giving an analogy, because no app would be the same, exactly the same for 20 years. I know that. It's just an analogy here for a moment. Stay with me on this. And then all of a sudden that app changed and nothing was exactly where it was. You had already, because you had been using that app, developed a memory map. And the memory map was telling you where to go. And it was already on autopilot. And so not having those areas there anymore, because we are visual, aural, and tactile learners. All humans are. There are different percentages as to how we learn in those three components of learning. But when several of those components are removed and reshuffled and put into a different categorization, or even some are taken away because they're deemed unnecessary because they weren't used enough and so perhaps that was like one of your favorite components of the app and it's gone perhaps that's exactly where you had your data and it's gone but you were the only person utilizing that portion you see so what ends up happening is this isn't just about probability of whether you are going to receive the same service that you received 20 years going. This is about the importance of understanding the bigger picture from a bandwidth perspective of how the structure functions. And not, not because it's in the interest of one person because you're the only person who uses that app component, but because it's in the interest of the entire system as it functions, just the way that a brain at its strongest point when it's connecting the more synapses that it could possibly connect, synapse to neuron, is at its strongest. You would want to strengthen that connectivity as opposed to weaken it.
so the importance of that example that I'm giving to what the brain does is because as we age, we lose connectivity. It's the plasticity in our brain that changes. This is why it's so easy for a younger person to learn many languages. There's more plasticity in the brain. This is why ages zero to three, a child should learn a minimum of 2,500 words a day. That's simple, simple, simple knowledge. Because in those years of infancy, plasticity in the brain is extraordinary. But what happens is as we get older, because those synapses have already been connected and perhaps sometimes even reconnected, there's there's a bit of an exhaustion that happens and they stop connecting at various rates, of course, but for some people it's profound. Uh, particularly with certain diseases where it just those synapses go away they just there's calcification in the brain and a lot of loss of that connectivity means loss of understanding loss of pattern recognition loss of memory loss of many things and so as we become stronger in technology which requires our memory map to remind us where to go, what to do, where to, what button to click where on which part of the device and what to do and all these different things. If the brain doesn't adapt because it isn't as, it doesn't have the plasticity that it used to, then how is one supposed to stay as connected or in tune or fine tune or be able to live within the confines of what society now defines as most critical? particularly when they have deemed that some essentialities are no longer essential. Yet, let's be real for a moment. As humans still alive and still living through society, that does define the very essence of essentiality. And so, it is true that someone may have been truly part of society for many years, many decades, and then circumstances change. Well, hello society, where are you now? And this is why I'm not harping on Project Roomkey by any means. It's good to have new projects, name certain projects, new things. That's fantastic. But what I am saying is the following. Though it's being given this fantastic concept of being a solution it isn't the end all for what solving homelessness is going to be let's be realistic about that it is a short term solution and one needs to stay focused on the future because budgeting is always in the today and in the tomorrow in terms of how programs will be funded and that is important because when someone has a program that they participate in today, that program isn't in the budget for tomorrow. Well, then what happens to that particular person? It doesn't mean that they stopped existing. It doesn't mean their needs stopped at any particular moment, just when the fiscal year ended. And so one has to really look at the humanity of it all. This is why 
when I bring up these conversations, it really is important to remind us all that yes, we have our digital devices, our little computers, our little phones, our little laptops, and our tablets, but we really have to remember that in the end, we are still human, although yes, we have this movement towards being a little more GMO, the more and more surgeries people have that augment their ability to be ultra real. That's a different conversation for a different day, but let's really focus on the sense of how human we truly are still, even though we may be a little GMO here and there. At the end of the day, solving homelessness is important, and to conclude this episode, I'll tell you Yes, when there was the move to end homelessness in the teens of this century, the goal was to end homelessness among veterans first. And if it was successful among ending homelessness among veterans, then it was thought that perhaps that same concept could be scaled to the rest of the homeless community. Though the deadline was extended several times, at the end of the reportability of all of the data that had been entered in and everybody was able to say what they had accomplished, it was reached. The report said 50% of the individuals that had been noted as being homeless were housed. So. That's a 50% rate yeah, yeah, I saw, I saw. Yeah, you have a nice of solving homelessness. And if you got a capo, now, if we were in a class and someone said you received 50% on your test, that would be a bit of a fail. But we're not in a class. We are actually in life. And so it actually is a pretty big success rate considering the many anomalies that happen throughout move to end homelessness. What are those anomalies, you might ask? They are the following. People moved from state to state. People moved from county to county. And people were housed in areas where they originally were not in. And so to have arrived at 50% was a huge success. And so one can say that to then begin to scale that was really important. But let me also continue. That's the national figure, 50%. Some states actually accomplished 90%, which is fantastic. And the importance of my distinguishing between the two is because the interdependence of the understanding of the relevance of solving homelessness between states was so essential, and that is what was lost in the last seven years. And it has to be regained in the future to be able to understand how important it is to solve this for the sake of not only humanity, but for the sake of the country. Because, and as I end on this point, is a 
everyone defines not having a home differently. It isn't always about having a structure with a door that one walks into with a key. For some people, that isn't exactly what they desire for a home. For some people, and you would ask, and you would get an answer. A home is where they are. And defining that, as I said, is unique to each and every individual. So it almost seems draconian to begin new programs that ignore the progress that so many other programs have made through point-in-time counts that help identify people who are wanting services versus people who say, I don't want to be counted, do not count me at this moment, versus uh, people who are in programs that require continual care, versus people who have constant needs that are already receiving services in a transitory nature versus programs that and I can go on and on and this is where I add an ellipsis because you cannot put every single person who's ever been without a home in one category homelessness is defined in many ways and no one can define it for any other person but the person who has experienced it themselves you see all you have to do is ask someone, and you will understand. But if you don't understand, do not pretend that you do, because you never would. And that's the difference between uh, some organizations that try to encapsulate a concept. And while there are some people that jest about what being outside is like, they may not realize that there are many philanthropic people who go unrecognized on a daily basis. There are many accomplished people who go unrecognized on a daily basis. And there are many people who are living their lives who go unrecognized on a daily basis. And so do not judge by what you see, because when you do, you actually miss the full sense of the humanity of the conversation. And if you're wondering, what is Project Room Key after all? It is the concept that has been going around helping people get placed into different components of housing, structural housing. And that is why I was distinguishing between understanding what it means for someone when they define themselves as without home. A lot of people don't own a home. That doesn't mean that they are without housing. And so 
do not categorize, what you do not understand. But having said that, much positive has been done because of the budgetary allocations in many states. And I did mention 90% success rate in some states as well. And those are bright spots that have been recognized throughout the country. And as they're recognized, one has to look at, do those programs continue to exist five years, 10 years, 20 years later? Because what happens is, the ability to keep people housed is the essentiality of understanding if a program is successful. It isn't just about housing someone and then not realizing whether they were able to maintain housing for the long term. Looking at long-term solutions has never been easy. It's always easy to write a plan. It's never easy to implement it. The challenge of any jurisdiction, city, municipality, whether it's metropolitan or township, is in the development of a strategic plan. Not to let that strategic plan gather dust on a shelf, but to ensure that that strategic plan truly reflects the tenacity and dedication that all of the individuals who worked on it continue to reflect the true inspirations of all of the community members that participated in the development of that strategic plan. For it isn't just the leadership that develops a strategy, it is all of the community members who fill out surveys, who talked at forums, who attended events, who said, this is what I envision for the future. And you see, at the end of the day, it's a nice little binder that goes on a shelf. But let it not be gathering dust for 10 years so that on the 11th year, someone removes it off the shelf and says, oh, what do you know? We have to create another plan. It's not the kind of situation it should be for this type of strategic plan is dynamic, ever moving, ever understanding, because our society changes. We can see that with climate change. We can see that with the way populations have been required to move through all over the country. And one can see so much dynamism. So I hope that you can garner something from this topic because it really is essential in the understanding of how we solve not only this subject matter but so many others for the future. Thanks for listening. Come and do point report. Digital Electronic World Point Report. And this is your host, Margarita.